Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. In a moment, we're going to receive our offering, and if you're here exploring things, hey, take the pass on the issue, but before I do that, let me give you a quick snapshot of kind of where we've been. We got into a series entitled The Binding. This is not referring to like being bound up necessarily, but it was in part in reference to an old Bible I've had for many years that I had rebound. I have two images. That's, that's not mine, but that's how mine was. That's actually in better condition than mine was. Okay. And then uh, I had mine rebound recently, and uh, this is actually how it looks now. So for those of you who can't see it up close, um, the original materials in here, all the things that were of significance to me as far as notes and dates and everything else are still part of that. But there's a fresh look to it. It's also now bound together so it's not losing and coming apart the way it used to be. And so as we're going forward as a church, we're discussing those things that bind us together. There are certain things we want to retain, certain things we want to keep. But we also recognize that there needs to be a fresh connecting point or, or approach or methodology may change. But there are several things. So we're looking at four things that have bound us in the past that we're not letting go of. And then four things that will bind us a little bit uh, going forward. Last week we talked briefly uh, in regards to this piece of art over here and the idea that, that um, the stone in the middle represents Christ. We talked the idea that, that Christ is center as God, him being God, is center to who we are. And that is a non-negotiable issue. But there was a second component, and that is that his character is also of extreme importance in understanding how we're to live out our lives. And we're going to take that a little bit deeper here today as to how that kind of fleshes out and works out. Now, total side point has nothing to do with righteousness or unrighteousness whatsoever. But I got to tell you, those of you who actually were here like early, I am so impressed because there was a lot of you that did that. There was actually someone that came in and as they're passing me saying, say, we made it. You know, <laughs> now for those of you that came in later, there is grace. There is no problem with that. You have issues from children to all sorts of things. We understand that. So no one feel pressured. I hate the last thing I wanted is someone to see. Oh, I'm two minutes late. You know what? Let's just not go today. You know, because they're going to look at us. No, show up. But if you can be here early, we can encourage one of each other and lift each other up in the process and, and, and get things rolling away. So my commendations to those of you who were able to achieve that, and my, my blessings and prayer for the rest of you, who uh, whatever your processes are, that, that God helps you in the process of that. I have something I want to present to you as we continue now into the second part entitled Turn the Page. Father, I ask your blessing upon this offering. We release these finances into your hands for your purposes. And I ask that you speak to us in this gathering now as well. In Jesus' name, amen. That's something a little different. Let me tell you, oh my friends, about this joy I'm living in let me take the mic go on a 
you know, it brings a smile at least to your face, so I would hope this morning, uh, you know, you get a little bit of a sense of the joy that comes that they're saying here from basically knowing Christ. Wouldn't it be great if there was a magic hat that you just suddenly put on and everything changed? You know, I mean, we, we look at that and part of it as Christians we can identify with. There's definitely a joy that comes, I think, in knowing Christ. But I think the majority of us also recognize that there's a challenge in the process of that. We talked last week about Christ and we talk about his work for us and, and we talk about salvation. And one of the, the first things that, that Jesus speaks, the very first thing when he begins his ministry in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, is right after his temptation in the desert, he begins to preach and the first word is what? Come on, guys. From, the, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. The very first word is what? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We forget this about Jesus in his love and in his grace, that the very first thing he says is repent. And that's a theme throughout his ministry that he speaks and addresses to and, uh, um, and challenges us on. He, he talks about repentance, which means a change of direction. Repentance doesn't mean we feel bad about something, but it means if we're going this way, we turn direction, we start going this way, that we change what we do. And, and what the, the artist is saying in the song is that when he came to know Christ, when he repented, that there was a change of direction and a change in regards to his life. In a way, he's working out a little bit of what Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 says. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, that numbness to the things that are wrong, and now a sensitivity. It can be painful getting a heart of flesh, just as a thought. A heart of stone and the numbness, we don't feel anything anymore. We've shut ourselves off, and, and there can be some degree of weird solace in that. A heart of flesh, we feel things again. And it can be a little challenging. So he talks about this change, and Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew, start, so there's something you're starting, work it deeper in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Regeneration is basically what salvation is. It's a rebirth, it's a born-again element. But what I want to talk to you about this morning in turning the page is something entitled sanctification. Now, that's a real theological phrase, and I don't mean to, to throw you down with that a whole lot. But basically it's defined as this. It's the work of God's free grace whereby we're renewed in the whole person of who we are after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live in righteousness. It's this continuing work that God puts in us, freeing us from certain habits that are sinful, forming us increasingly like Christ. So if Christ is truly the center and we've truly repented and there's a change in who we are, today too much of theology is coming out and saying that's it. So just lean into that and you can run wild on everything else. And that's not what the scripture says and that's not the baseline of what it's about. I want to give you a very vivid illustration of this and I'm going to read to you something here this morning. This will be a little different. I want to present to you a um, video here for a moment of... Um, one of our more deeper philosophical renderings as a culture, The Bachelorette. And an interview that was done recently, 
um, that involved uh, uh, one of the near finalists, evidently, I don't follow the show at all, but the near finalist who professed to be a Christian and the person herself who professes to be a Christian as well too. And um, I want to come on to this, so take a look. I have had sex. And honestly, Jesus still loves me. What is the most dramatic moment of the season? I've had sex and Jesus still loves me is probably one of the most dramatic. Okay. Moments. Yeah. So let's talk about sex. Okay. And how the marriage bed should be kept pure. My faith, that is a big, huge part of me. And a lot of times people get Christianity and religion messed up because your faith should be something personal in a relationship and it's not to judge others. And let's say you have had sex with one or multiple of these guys. I'd be wanting to go home. Oh my God, I cannot believe you just said that. I'm so mad. I don't owe you anything. It seems like you felt judged or shamed. Yes, and it's like... Regardless of any thing that I've done, uh, it that people might think, oh, well, that deserves a scarlet letter. That's not how it works. Like, I can do whatever I sin daily, and Jesus still loves me. Like, it's all washed, and do not, and if the Lord doesn't judge me, and it's all forgiven, then no other man, woman, animal anything <laughs> i don't know anything can nobody's judge me. judging hannah b nobody's gonna judge me i won't stand for it i'm gonna speak my mind about it the lord made sex to be amazing and guess what a man does not control anything that i do it's really my like power play moment okay like not playing anymore anything you wish you'd said or did you get it all out i think i got it all out <laughs> Get it pretty crystal clear. Crystal clear. You would think, but we'll see. You set up for yourself. Honestly, my faith has grown so much, and I realized like what relationship with the Lord is really about. I don't have to carry that to ever have anybody make me feel that way. Uh, it's a it's a little messed up, and I'm not going to stand for that. She goes on uh, at one point later in the show, evidently, to point out that she had had sex twice with this one guy before talking to Luke about it. Luke himself was not a real paragon of virtue in this process. He was someone who'd been a player, um, but had come to Christ and uh, had set aside, actually, uh, the issue of sex um, until marriage uh, because of his faith. But he still had his own, own immaturities involved. What I found particularly interesting on this, and I could have tons of conversation about this right now, but I don't trust myself a whole lot to have that conversation right now. So I'll let someone else do that. Um, Luke's pastor wrote a letter because of all the hype and everything else was going on about this. And I found the way he addressed this to be balanced and of interest. Because the conversation being, or the proposition being offered, is that once we come to Christ, that that's it, that everything's good. I can sin daily, and it's all washed. I can do whatever I want, it's all forgiven. And increasingly, this drumbeat has entered in through a number of writings of, of even churches and pastors and everything else like this, that, that once you're covered in this, then nothing else matters. You kind of stay in this place. At best, at best, that argues for keeping as, as spiritual babies. At best. At worst, it is a, a, a profane statement about the grace of God. Anyways, before I go too much further on this. Entitled, The Bible and the Bachelorette. In recent weeks, millions of people have been discussing this question, does Jesus still love Christians who have sex outside of marriage? 
You're probably not aware of this conversation unless you're following the current season of The Bachelorette. Now you're also probably wondering why an old preacher like me is taking part in a discussion about the Bible and The Bachelorette. He's the old preacher, not me, okay? Well, my daughter's brother-in-law, Luke, is on the show this season. My wife and I have known Luke for nearly five years and have come to know him very well when he lived in our house for a period of time. We love Luke and are glad to have him in our family, so we definitely took an interest when we decided to be on the show. While The Bachelor and The Bachelorette are no strangers to discussions on love and sex, <clears throat> introducing Jesus into the conversation is new. You see, this season, uh, this season's Bachelorette, Hannah is a professing Christian, as is Luke. As a matter of fact, hearing about her outspoken Christianity is the sole reason he went. Luke had never ever seen the show. So two Christians enter a sensual environment where one woman attempts to date over 20 men in hopes of finding a husband. Of course, the series thrives on physical attraction, emotional chemistry, and drama, lots of drama. What could possibly go wrong? Needless to say, it's a recipe for total chaos. <clears throat> in my opinion, Luke and Hannah chose to participate in something for which neither was spiritually or emotionally prepared. Both are under a social media microscope, and each has been called a bad Christian by other believers as well as those outside of Christianity. Social media is ruthless. People professing Christ often come across as the meanest of the mean. And while I never condone hateful posts of any kind, I also understand what caused viewers to raise an eyebrow. At various times, Luke and Hannah uh, displayed attitudes, behaviors, or speech that should not belong to a follower of Jesus Christ. I've been among those who challenged Luke about his behavior on the show. These conversations have been hard, but not heartless. After all, Galatians tells us, Brethren, if even one of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. We've exercised discipline issues in the past, but whenever we've done that, it's always been with brokenness. It's always been with an idea towards redemption, not, not destroying. Let me put it this way. We've treated Luke with the understanding that we all live one breath and step away from stupidity. Luke hasn't made excuses or attempted to justify any of his actions. He listened, admitted he compromised his faith, and sought correction. Despite all the drama, Luke found himself in the final four men. He and Hannah seemed to have a general connection, genuine connection with each other. No doubt sharing a common faith was a huge part of that, as it should be for Christians. To their credit, both have been fairly transparent throughout this process. Even as professing Christians, neither claimed to be a virgin before appearing on the show. However, when they broached the topic of sex, they discovered that a common faith doesn't mean seeing eye to eye on every issue. The result was an explosive conversation which was heavily promoted in previews and set off a firestorm on social media. One statement in that conversation started the larger online discussion when Luke asked Hannah if she'd had sex with the men on the show and she said, yes, I've had sex and Jesus still loves me. Now I find this statement intriguing, especially after 35 years of studying and preaching the Bible. First, let's address the elephant in the room. Does Jesus still love Christians who had sex outside of marriage? Absolutely. His love is unconditional. But the real question we should be discussing is not if sex outside of marriage diminishes Jesus' love for a Christian, but what it says about a believer's love for him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And God's instructions regarding sex are extremely clear. First, he created sex exclusively for marriage, Genesis 2.24. Because sex unites two people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It's designed for a husband and a wife to show affection and commitment to one another. Also, Hebrews 13 tells us to honor the covenant of marriage by keeping the marriage bed pure. Keep in mind, the purity of marriage begins long before the vows are taken. Having sex before marriage cheapens what God intended. Single believers live out their faith by choosing to abstain from sexual activity. 
As professing Christians, our views about sex and marriage should reflect God's views, not because he wants to limit our pleasure, but because he wants to protect us. All sin comes with consequences. 1 Corinthians 6.18 informs us that the immoral man sins against his own body. Luke has been heavily criticized for being so verbal about his faith while also having a sexual past, but it was the self-inflicted pain of past sexual sin that's driving Luke's decision to remain celibate until he gets married. No, he cannot undo what's been done. But now he deeply desires to honor God's design for sex within the covenant of marriage. Christians can and do commit sexual sin, but, without, but not without the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And while those sinful choices can't separate believers from the love of Jesus, they do stand in the way of enjoying fellowship with him. The Lord may even stop convicting a believer who continually ignores the Spirit, resulting in a hardened heart, one of stone, a reverting, if you will, and a lack of biblical conviction. But God also restores fellowship when any believer turns from that sin and asks for his forgiveness. God's mercy and grace always accompany his love. So professing to be a follower of Jesus, but continuing to engage in what God calls sin, is taking advantage of his grace. Romans 6, and let's back that up. Professing to be a follower of Christ, but continuing to engage in what God calls sin, whatever that sin is, is taking advantage of his grace. Romans 6 presents this question, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. It makes no sense to claim that God's grace allows us to do the very things for which his son died. You see, sin sin should be the exception in the life of the Christian, not the rule. Another backlash of this entire discussion is the accusation that Luke was judging Hannah when he said he would leave if she'd had sex while on the show. 1 Corinthians 5.9 offers some insight. And the message paraphrase is especially interesting. It says this, I'm saying that you shouldn't act as if everything is just fine when a friend who claims to be a Christian is promiscuous. You can't just go along with this, treating it as acceptable behavior. I'm not responsible for what outsiders do, but don't we have some responsibility for those who are within our community of believers? God decides in the outsiders, but we didn't need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line. So yes, God expects Christians to raise questions when other Christians' actions are out of line with his word. It's actually a sign of godly love, if done lovingly. No doubt this entire experience has been difficult on Luke and Hannah as well as their families. Social media has been open season on their lives, their character, and their faith. My prayers are with them both, and above all, I pray that they each desire to know God more and to obey him fully. That statement of to know God and to obey him fully is put together, and I like the fact of those connection points. If we know God, then there should be obedience. Regeneration or salvation is a, is a new birth. Sanctification is growth. Regeneration or salvation is a momentary act bringing someone from spiritual death to life, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It is exclusively God's work. Sanctification, though, is an ongoing process depending on God's continuing action in the believer and consisting of the believer's continual struggle against sin. One author put it this way, if you're going on a journey from across the ocean to another location and you're you're paddling all you can and you either spend the whole time just paddling your whole way around, after a while you give up hope and you just kind of start drifting along. So you're either paddling hard and trying to do all the work or you're just drifting and and letting go because you realize you're at an impossible state to be able to paddle all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. But there's a third option, he says, and this is more the area of sanctification or of growing in Christ. And that is putting up a sail and getting to discern which way the wind is blowing and then aligning yourself with that wind. 
And this is what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit, is a type of wind. And so that there are certain areas in our lives that need to change. And only we know what those areas are. And the area for you is probably very different than the area for me and vice versa. We can't necessarily judge those in that line except where it lines up with Scripture. And with Scripture, there are some clear definitions. In 1 Thessalonians, it says it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. And so in this area, we have a clear understanding from which we can have a judgment. But a lot of the other things, we can't judge necessarily how those things um, are acting out. A lot of those things can be hidden. There's a whole list I've got here from arguing to whining to greed to following the group to anger, stealing, inappropriate speech, cheating, gossip. They don't have posting weird things, but I think that should be in the scriptures too as well right now. Okay? Looking at inappropriate things, unkindness, laziness, pride, all these things. It used to be when I was growing up that there were certain things that, that, that one person refers to kind of as, as border statements, I think it is. That, that those who do those things are outside the borders and we could identify who is part of our subculture because they didn't do those things. Ironically enough, one of those was dancing. Never could have shown a video like that years ago in the churches I grew up. Would have been condemned immediately because it involved dancing. And that was something that you just didn't do for whatever reason. Going to movies period was just a thing. I grew up in a very rigid background with that type of thing. So if you went to a movie and danced at the same time, you were really going to hell. Okay? You know? Those were external things that said, okay, you're part of our culture, you're not part of our culture. And we could judge those things. And it was amazing because things like gossip and lying and a lot of the other things just slipped right underneath the, uh, the edge of things. God's not interested so much in boundary markers as he's really interested actually in shaping who we are. He's not interested in just having salvation and a, and a change. There's something genuine about this, that when we choose to, to engage Christ, there is a transformation, there is a change that takes place, and there is a joy about that. There is a release about that. There's something about broken repentance and the freedom of that. John Grisham, in his a novel, the, the Testament, paints this portrait of, of one man's surrender to God's will. It has Nate O'Reilly as this disgraced corporate attorney. He's plagued by alcoholism and drug abuse. After two marriages and four detox programs, he's got a serious issue with uh, even a, an illness at one point, he finally acknowledges God. And in his work, here's how it plays out. With both hands, Nate clenches the back of the pew in front of him. He repeated the list, mumbling softly, every weakness and flaw and affliction that plagued him. He confessed them all. In one long, glorious acknowledgement of failure, he laid himself bare before God. He held nothing back. He had loaded enough burdens to crush any three men. And when he finally finished, Nate had tears in his eyes. I'm sorry, he whispered to God. Please help me. As quickly as the fever had left his body, he felt the baggage leave his soul. With one gentle brush of the hand, his slate had been wiped clean. He breathed a massive sigh of relief, but now his pulse was racing. He was set now for something new. And this is what happens when we accept Christ. There's that clean slate wipe. There's that fresh.
freshness. There's that stepping forward. And a lot of the culture, a lot of the church culture today is saying, that's it. You're good to go. Now you can continue on. You can have Jesus and your old lives too. That's not the call of Scripture. It is countercultural. It is deeply challenging of where the culture is. There was something years ago when I was in grad school that I had a prof do something that really caught my attention. And I've used this illustration before. Now, originally I was given this marker. You can see that, right? No, not really, not really, not really, not from the bag. Then I was given this marker. Not much better. Then they gave me this marker. And let's go like this. Now that's a marker. Okay? Now, the Jews used to have this question a lot of times that they'd ask. It was referred to in the class I was in as the Jewish question. It wasn't taking a shot at Jewish people. It was taking a statement about the theology. Their mindset was, here's a God who is so holy and everything else, but what can we do before we cross this boundary? If this is grace, and realize that my handwriting has yet to be redeemed, okay? And this is God, then how far can we go before we cross a boundary and we're no longer in grace? Not a bad question, especially if you're a legalistic type of person. You know, can I do this? Can I do that? And you could say it's got a good motive. Maybe I don't want to cross that line. How far do I go before I cross that line? How far before I I drop over the edge? How far? And it is if you're just legalistically trying to follow rules. But if you're in relationship, if as we talked about, Christ has character. He's the character of God revealed in man for the purposes of us coming to an understanding and being transformed as well as reconnecting with God, then the question was misplaced. The question should be instead inward turned. What items are coming between me and God? What items need to be laid down? What are the issues that as I'm trying to move closer to God, if, if he's in the middle of this whole scenario, And it's not a question of, can I still hold on to this stool and and not go over the edge? Can I still have this and not go over the edge? Instead, it's the question of, I'm turning my direction now. Instead, is this in the way? Is this, whatever the stool represents in the way between me and God and me coming closer to him? What are the issues that, it's not that you're holding on and saying, can I still keep that item? And sex tends to be a central one, but it's not the only one. I was struck recently by um, a video I saw. There's a a group of of men and women who have come out of the uh, homosexual lifestyle, a deeply sexualized lifestyle, and have come to Christ and are setting that lifestyle aside. And one of them was speaking, and he said, don't make freedom your, your God, make Christ your freedom. I thought this is amazing that this guy's setting aside his entire identity to follow Christ and saying, don't make freedom your God, make Christ your freedom. He was one of two of the guys that are leading this group that were two of the people that were in the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. 
He was in that nightclub when the shooting took place and survived it. And part of his response has been to transform his life and to seek a freedom in Christ from that part. But it's not just our sexuality. The list I read here earlier, you know, goes from whining, greed, anger, stealing, inappropriate speech. I mean, I go down the list, and by the time I'm down with the list, you're sitting here going, who can keep that entire list? Not one of us can keep that entire list. There's not one of us. I, 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 I don't want to risk the idea of asking someone to raise their hand as to who's perfect here, because I'm afraid someone just might do that. But most of us wouldn't. Most of us would acknowledge that all of us have flaws, have weaknesses, areas that we fall down. That's why when someone else falls in a way that we can clearly see by Scripture is wrong, our thing is not to say, aha, you're screwed up more than I am, thank God or to shy away from it, or to sit here in, in our anger and all our other frustrations, pour our anger, you failed, you horrible person, because I can beat you up because I'll feel better then. But instead, it's because we're aware of our own feelings that we come to them and we say, look, I, I failed, I've stumbled too, but you're just one statement, and Luke had his own pride and other issues, clearly. One thing on the social media response between the two of me said is, he says, the difference is, he says, we both are sinners, he said. We both are. He says, the difference is, I see you laughing at your sin while I'm weeping at mine. Now, that can even be an arrogant statement itself, but let's take it for a good face value. She's celebrating those things. So one of the questions I guess to start with is, do you celebrate your failings and your sins and your weaknesses and things you want to hold on to? Whether it's your drinking and your drugging or whatever the case may be, or your lying or your gossiping or your indiscriminate posting. Do you justify that? Do you celebrate it? The fact that you can cut someone down faster than anybody else can, verbally? Then your anger that you can overpower people and control events? Or is there something of a brokenness in you that, that steps back? Now, part of the argument here, though, comes to saying, wait a minute, though, a lot of the stuff that, that God seems to be directing, it doesn't make sense. I don't know why he would have me give up in the case of, of, of someone who's struggling with homosexuality, my, my very identity as I see it to be. How, how does that work as right? Or if, if I'm a, a healthy, vibrant, heterosexual, uh, and, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm, that's, that's permitted under God, but only in marriage? Why have I got to struggle for years of my life? Or even if I'm in a marriage, it's dysfunctional. Why can't I just dump that person and walk away from those issues? It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem to be the way it should be. And that's where certain scripture again comes to play. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. No, his ways aren't our ways. And that's where it comes down to this final question then. Do you truly trust God or not? For that person in the LGBT community who's given up not just their identity as they saw it, but their very community oftentimes, they are trusting God with everything. For that heterosexual who chooses to not indulge outside of marriage, they're surrendering something. And maybe they don't understand all the reasons for it, but it's a trusting in God. So the real core of this is do you trust him or not? Or do we lean in our own fashion, in our own ways? Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Romans 12, 2, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conversations like this, 
Then you'll be able to test and approve what's God's will and what's perfect and pleasing. Ephesians chapter 4, you were taught, and you're being taught right now. If you say, when were we taught? You're being taught right now. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the scripture. It's not enough just to, to acknowledge Christ as God. We also have to realize there's a distinct character in the way that God works. He doesn't betray. He's always faithful. He doesn't lie. His anger, when it is exhibited, is 100% righteous and not capricious. We are to take that nature on then, and if we continue with this, to turn the page with whatever has been our thing, to submit that to God, to repent in brokenness before that, and then to go the other direction, to turn the page and move on with life. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, Paul says, but now much more in my absence, he makes an interesting phrase, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does this mean that works... No, understand. And one of the things I, I appreciate, I could argue with this pastor in the, the freedom he gives Hannah. But I think he's right maybe in that moment. She's a kid still, if you will. She's a very young person yet. And maybe is limited in her understanding of the things of faith. And so let's accept that maybe she is a believer. But her, her understanding is so limited at that point in time. Is it about works? No. Once we come to Christ, we are transformed. We are changed. There is a joy. There is a delight. And no, I'm not going to put it on, nor am I going to dance. You have enough images to overcome, but you don't need that. But we are. We're changed. We're transformed. And wouldn't it be great if there's a magic hat for everything? Oh, I've got anger. Oh, hey, I said, I don't have anger anymore. You know, I'm struggling with it. No, I struggle. No. Instead, while we're saved by grace totally and not by works, we're told to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, continue to be aware of those things that are coming between us and God and how we draw into Him. I was asked something this past week. There is this, this freakishly little place that's a Russian monastery in the middle of Harper Woods. And, and what happens in this place, and I heard about it first a couple of years ago from some young friends of mine, but I was out this past week, Renee and I had gone there with some friends, and, and once a night they, they have a restaurant for helping to provide for this place. And so we drove up to it, and they've taken like eight acres in a residential area, so they evidently bought up all the lots and all the houses and converted this place for this monastery. And as we're driving, it was kind of cool. They had the banners on the street side and all, and they had these really cool banners that says, Jesus is Lord. And they had multiple banners all the way up and down the street. And so and imagine, if you will, for a moment, this. They've got these banners everywhere. This is the street. This, this is the street here we're facing. In. And they've got banners everywhere across here. And then there's a house. And then they've got banners all the way across here because evidently their property is here and then goes way back behind here and all the way over to here. But there was one holdout that didn't sell, evidently. So there's one house in the middle of it all. And these Jesus is Lord's. And Renee commented as we're driving here, she says, well, I guess Jesus is Lord every place but there. And I thought, what insight. 
Is that what God does? He looks into our lives and he sees all the different attitudes and, and aspects of who we are and he says, looks to me like, like I'm Lord everywhere but here, Randy. Oh, and here, and here, and here, if we're going to be honest. And old, yeah, there's a lot, but let's start with right here. Why am I not Lord there? Well, it doesn't make sense to me, God. It doesn't seem the way I would do it. And, and it's, I've got pressures. I've got hassles. I've got, it's the way I am. You made me. I mean, all the different arguments we can go through. But the real question is, is Jesus Lord here? Many of us in this room, not all of us, but many of us, probably the majority, are ones who become changed by God's grace. And there's a very seductive thing in play right now that says that that's really all you need. Covered your good. Now some of us go beyond that point and we end up having two different divergent paths. The one is where we say, that's right, I'm not going to mess with it. It makes me feel bad. I, I'm just going to accept it. We buy it increasingly. And you'll find other churches that will reinforce that. It's just one big party, guys. Just party on, dudes. Go along with Bill and Ted and their excellent adventure. Okay? Others of us take that, though, and, and we're so beaten and destroyed oftentimes by our feelings, we don't see just the one. We see all of them at one time, and they just crush us. We run and we hide after failing again and again and again. And that's not the way of it either. There's a, a scripture that comes to play real deeply. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That passage is talking about after we've even become believers. So when you fail in an area, when you know that you've come across an area that you know in your heart of hearts or from scripture or been taught that that is wrong and you keep failing on that again and again and again, do you run and hide? Do you go Hannah, and just justify and say, hey, you know, Jesus loves me and it's all good, I'm washed. It's just no sweat, dude. Do you stay buried in your sin and your shame or is there a part of you that rises up and turns to your father? Years ago when I was a kid, I was um, messing around on top of a cyclone fence. Those are those fences that are wire fences and they have those little things on the top like this. And uh, another friend of mine and I were, were, well, sort of friend, we were fighting. Um, and uh, I tossed him off the fence. Um, it was righteous, I'm sure. But in doing so, I lost my balance and tried to grab the fence as I went over and I caught it. And some of you know this, I ripped open my entire palm on that thing. I went back years later and found actually the original thing. It's still bent. I left it bent. I thought, you pay for that. But anyways, ripped open my whole palm. I put pressure on it immediately. It was pretty bad. It was the entire palm. And I didn't think of running and hiding in a gully. I, I immediately ran home. I knew my father was home and I ran home. And the moment he heard my cries, I put some water on it and tried to wash it. He rushed in and, and, and it wasn't easy had taken me to the doctors, had to hold my hand down, and, and they had to put shots in the raw meat. And I'm not trying to make you all upset, but it was not a fun thing to do as they stitched the thing up. But if I had not done that, I could have died from that. The blood loss alone, I certainly would have had a damage of hands that I would never have been able to play guitar or anything else again. 
We all have failings and weaknesses. None of us in this room are perfect. Are we changed by coming to Christ? Yes, absolutely. Is there a joy with that? Absolutely. But then there's the process of sanctification. There's a process of growing. There's a process of developing. And that means that we take our stuff and we bring it to our Father. And whenever we do, you need to realize there's not one time. <laughs> and in that moment, my dad didn't sit there and say, wow, you really screwed that up. Well, hey, here's the hacksaw. <laughs> no, he immediately put pressure. He immediately took me where I got to get help. He immediately responded. And granted, he was a pretty good dad. And he'll have been past one year as of next week. And others of you had dads that weren't that good. And as one friend of mine outlined, she never even had a dad, so she has no image of what that is. But God is that perfect father. And yes, we are saved by grace and Christ stands in the center. But there's something deeper as well, and that's that process of transformation and change. And that is a struggle. Don't run from it. Don't Stay in your shame. Don't take a worldview like Hannah does. Turn back to your father. Say, I don't understand this, but your word says this, and I trust you, and I offer this to you again and again until finally whatever it is is finished and closed, and we can turn this page and go on in the story. So, with that, Father, we come before you as your people, as your church. We are broken and bleeding and simple people. We have our own pride and our own arrogance. We've known the joy of being forgiven by you. But we're also conscious that, that there's still issues that need to be resolved. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd come to this house this day, that you'd establish your banner here in this place and say, Jesus is Lord also over my anger, over my sexuality, over my thoughts and what I choose to look at and what I choose not to, what I say, that Jesus is Lord over that and we submit to you. This morning I pray, Father, that this be a time of regeneration within this, your congregation. So does Jesus love us when we sin? Absolutely. He still loves us. The question is, do we love him? And if we do, to what degree do we partner with him, catch the wind of his spirit, and change? Two final thoughts for you. One is, one of the things that have typified this for us is a piece of art that you see going out today from the building. The original artist um, made this about this big, and uh, it was part of a display uh, when I was doing my grad studies in Chicago, Wheaton College, of different artists that were provided, and you could purchase the art, and I was so impressed with this. It just caught my imagination. That I thought, I don't care if it's $1,000, I'm gonna buy it. It was $35,000, so I didn't buy it. Um, but we've used it in the past for a very significant moment. We won't take time to highlight that now, but I wanna show you just the image again of the original piece of art. It was a crystal figure, and it's entitled Born Again. It's a struggle. It's the individual who's submitted to God 
and is seeing the transformation and change has begun. There is a radical change and the, the, the person they're supposed to be is coming out, but there's a struggle in that process. Don't give up that struggle, but I have a passage for you before we go out here today. This passage is this. The one who has begun a good work in you will see it to its completion. God started something in you. He changed something. He's not finished yet. And he'll complete it. He'll complete it. There'll be those available for prayer if you'd like to come up afterwards. Father, I pray that you continue to shape us as your congregation. I pray, Lord, that as individuals come to grips with these items today, that whatever your spirit has prompted on them, that, Lord, they'd forsake the shame of the closet and they would come forward to you. And, Lord, that we continue to engage no matter how long it takes, even if it's a lifetime, to follow your truth and to apply it to our lives. Guide us in this as we go forward as a congregation in Jesus' name.